So last year on October 15th, uh, the actress Alyssa Milano tweeted this. Suggested by a friend, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. And that tweet started a, a tidal wave of tweets with the hashtag MeToo from women and men who have been victimized. And a new movement picked up steam. And this is a movement that is concerned with what has always been an issue of justice in any culture of the world that you might be a part of, but has also often been covered up and passed over. And the issue of justice is the issue of sexual harassment, predation, abuse, and assault. And uh, surely if we follow mainstream news or social media feeds, uh, we've seen discussion of this in whatever field of interest we might have. One in six women in the United States are victims of some form of harassment. On college campuses, one in five, one in five, 20% of female students are assaulted at some point during their college tenure. This is a massive justice issue. Me Too has spread to all walks of life as well. Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Dustin Hoffman and many, many others in Hollywood. Multiple politicians that will go unnamed. Multiple coaches in college athletics. The U.S. gymnastics scandal. And sadly, also in the church. Even in the past week, the Roman Catholic Church has been back in the news concerning yet more instances of abuse on the part of priests. And multiple leaders in the Protestant world, in our world, friends, including some of the most well-known pastors and celebrity leaders of recent generations, are seeing their ministries crumble because of accusations and cover-ups being made known. And so there's no doubt about it, Me Too has moved to the foreground in our culture right now as an important issue of justice. And so what we're going to think about for a few minutes is what does the Bible have to say about this issue? How are we to think about it as followers of Jesus? What are we to do? And so we're concluding this series, Justice, by thinking about that topic. And I want you to remember again what we said every week. Here's what justice is. Justice is the action of God that works for the equality and flourishing of all humanity. And given that, we've also seen every week that Christians, people who believe Jesus, should be concerned about justice because God is concerned about justice. We are to imitate the character of God and the action of God in our own spheres to the best of our ability, to seek justice in our lives. And so for this particular topic, I approach it with some trepidation, and uh, there's a lot of different angles that you can take to think about this idea, but I've decided to take a more narrative approach this morning. We're going to look at these two stories that I've just read for us and see how these stories shed light on this particular justice issue. And one is the story of Vashti and Xerxes, or Ahasuerus. I'm going to say Xerxes because it's a lot easier, in Esther chapter 1. And the other is the story of Jacob and his daughter Dinah in Genesis 34. And neither of those stories is pleasant. I stopped reading in Genesis 34 before it gets really unpleasant. You're welcome. And uh, you can read that later if you want. And, uh, but both of these stories can help us orient our thinking and our action on this particular topic. Because the Bible does speak. It speaks to all walks of life. It's relevant for every issue that we face, including this one. 
And so I want to organize our time together this morning just by giving you three reflections, okay? Pretty briefly, three reflections drawn from the scriptures in regards to the Me Too movement. So let's start. The first reflection is this. Me Too reminds us about the blinding danger of raw power. The blinding danger of raw power. A major truth that we see, I think, from the Me Too movement that reflects what the scriptures teach is this. Unchecked power has a corrosive influence on those who wield it. Power has a tendency to corrupt people. Power has a tendency to blind people. As George Orwell famously says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Power tends, it doesn't always, but it tends to hoodwink us into thinking that we are in control when really we're not. And one way that this sinful disposition manifests itself is in treating people of the opposite gender as objects to be used for your pleasure and then discarded. And that's what we see in the beginning of the book of Esther. If you look there at that chapter, chapter one, we're introduced here to the Persian courts and to King Xerxes himself. And this is taking place, by the way, in the fifth century BC. So for historical context, if you know about the Battle of Thermopylae, the movie 300, or the book Gates of Fire, awesome book, by the way, dudes should read that book. It's a fun book. Uh, This is the same king that gets whipped by the Greeks a few years after this at Thermopylae. And one of the primary purposes of this chapter, and really of the whole book of Esther, is satire. Satire. The author is attempting to satirize the empire of that day. That is, to poke fun at their foolishness and to ridicule their absurd use of power. So just notice a few things that the author tells us. Xerxes, he was no petty tyrant. In fact, he was the ruler, verse 1 tells us, of a vast territory. It was the biggest empire the world had ever seen to that period in history. It went from present-day Pakistan all the way through northern Africa. And then the author goes out of his way to paint, in these first verses, a picture of opulence and wastefulness at this party. Notice the detail that he gives. There's a 180-day feast that takes place. There's all these amazing trinkets and vessels. There's a lot of wine, etc., etc., etc. We're meant to read this and be mildly revolted. Mildly revolted and impressed with this just extravagant display of excess. I read this week about uh, one of the Kardashian sisters' weddings, and I proudly will tell you that I have no idea which sister it was. Um, It was one of the Kardashian sisters who had a wedding some years ago, and the wedding price tag was $10 million. The ring was a 20-carat ring that cost $2.5 million, all for a marriage which lasted a grand total. Anybody want to guess? 72 days. 72 days. So this is not something that we are unfamiliar with in our culture. Opulence, wastefulness, extravagance. That's what Esther 1 is about. This is a great king, and he's the ruler of a great and vast kingdom, and he's flaunting his power for the world to behold. And then in verses 10 through 12, he hits a snag. His own wife, Vashti, the queen, is commanded by Xerxes to come before him and his drunken band of generals. Remember, this is after seven days of partying, 
and all these politicians and generals are watching, and he wants her to come parade as a trophy wife wearing a crown. And I'm not going to get into the innuendo. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of innuendo going on here. It's very explicit, and it's very objectifying what the king is asking of his queen. But Vashti, in an amazing display of courage, refuses. She says no. And this is where the satire hits the hardest. You see, here's what's happening. This king who rules the world and who even passes governmental edicts about the drinking rules at his own party, verse 8, he can't even control his own wife. So this man who seemingly has infinite power really is not in control at all. That's the point. The author's poking fun here at the fact that a domestic dispute in the royal home causes a state emergency. So all of the, all the cabinet has to gather in verses 15 through 22. And the king, although he's conquered the world, needs his advisors to help him deal with his wife's brave refusal. So the emperor really wears no clothes at all. That's the point. And the chapter is doing something important here. It's doing something pervasive. It's telling us this. We are all limited. We are all limited in our humanity. Esther 1 reminds us that those who possess significant worldly power tend to forget that truth. We tend to forget that we're limited. We tend to forget that we are finite and not infinite. And that's why Xerxes is made fun of in the story. He thinks he is divine. Literally, he thought he was divine. He thought he was omnipotent. But he can't get away with treating his wife as if she is a tool for his own personal pleasure. So ultimately, the story of the Bible tells us that no one, no one can get away with abuse of power and with victimization of those under them. None of these things escapes God's notice. God is just. God sees. God cares. God will judge this world in righteousness. One thing we've learned with each topic in this justice series is this. All people are image bearers of God. And therefore, all people have dignity and value and worth that no one can take away from them. And injustice, in all of its forms, attempts to rob people of that. That's worth our reflection together. God speaks through the scripture through a, to a world gone mad regarding sexual ethics. And he says that both men and women have inherent value and dignity. Now, I know, I know that both men and women are victims of sexual assault. I got all your emails this week, guys, about uh, the NYU professor, the female, that has been accused of abusing one of her male graduate students. Everyone can be a victim of this, but I think it's pretty, pretty undeniable to say that as a general rule, women are more often victims of this particular form of injustice in the vast majority of cases. That's the way it goes. And why is that? Well, one obvious reason this is obvious, right? That men are just physically stronger. That's one reason. And another reason is because men traditionally occupy the positions of power in our culture. And so we need to hear and remember that power has a tendency. It has a tendency for us to make those who wield it forget that they are limited. And it has a tendency to make those who wield it do anything to keep it and to roll over people if they want to. So just a couple of pieces of application, thinking about this first reflection. For men, 
This should go without saying, but given where we are in our culture, I'm going to say it. Objectifying women through overt harassment is wrong and sinful. But objectifying women through covert things, especially pornography, is not just an issue of purity. It's an issue of justice. Because every time you men engage in pornography of any type, you are denigrating the imago Dei in that person. You're using that person as an object for your personal pleasure and treating them as if they don't bear inherent dignity, value, and worth. That's a very practical and very common application of this principle of justice. To women, you also have the ability to use power. It's possible for our own sinful hearts to turn sexual sin on its head so that women, sometimes you're in control and in power by using your body and your beauty to get what you want. Remember Herodias's daughter in John chapter 6? When John, excuse me, Mark chapter 6, when John the Baptist speaks out to Herod and he says, what you're doing is wrong. And so Herodias, his wife, is really, really mad and they get Herod inebriated at a party and Herodias's daughter comes out and uses her body. She flaunts her beauty and basically has Herod wanting to do anything she says. And she says, what? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It's a great example, one of many examples of power that women can sometimes wield that devalues image bearers. It devalues those you are alluring and you are also devaluing yourself when you use your body to gain power over another person. Women do that obviously usually in a less overtly physically aggressive way, but it's something that we must all be aware of on a very practical personal level as we consider this issue. So the first reflection is that Me Too reminds us about the danger of raw power. Secondly, Me Too reminds us about the common failure, the common failure to defend the weak. Genesis 34. Um, one of the things that the Me Too movement has shown us is how common it is, how common it is for issues of injustice and victimization, particularly on this issue, to either go unnoticed or to get covered up. That's part of the power of social media. One of the good things about social media, actually, is that it gives voice to people who have, for many reasons, been quieted or hushed regarding what's happened to them. And this story, Genesis 34, really is a, it's one of those stories that you read, you're like, how did this make the cut of the Bible? Like, seriously, what's going on here? It's a rough story. And uh, it speaks to this point about a failure to defend the weak. It's about the patriarch Jacob. And uh, he completely fails in this story to respond to the injustice perpetrated against his own daughter, Dinah. So the story goes like this. Jacob's daughter, Dinah, she goes out and she meets the most popular boy in the city. This boy named Shechem, who was rich and handsome, but unfortunately he's also a complete jerk, right? He's a, he's a slime ball. And he physically and sexually assaults Dinah, verse 2. And in the aftermath, we see Jacob's really appalling failure to respond. First, notice verse 5 and 6. When Jacob hears about this, he doesn't do anything. 
In fact, there's not a single recorded word from Jacob in this entire chapter until the very end, which we'll get to in a minute. The narrator, verses 5 and 6, tells us that Jacob was waiting until the boys came home before he responded. And if you're a dad and you read that, you should be thinking, what in the world are you doing, Jacob? You don't need to wait for the boys. You're the father. You should be outraged. Not just her brothers. You're responsible to respond to this injustice. But what does Jacob do? He keeps completely silent. He doesn't seem at all concerned about what's happened to his own daughter. He's not emotional about it at all. We don't have a single word from him. In fact, it's the unbelieving tribal leader, Shechem's dad, Hamor, who initiates the right reaction. In verse 8, he's the one that says, hey, Jacob, something needs to be done about this. Listen, this is just pathetic. It's a pathetic failure from Jacob. And furthermore, when the sons, especially Dinah's full brothers, a couple of Jacob's boys, hear about what's happened and they begin negotiating with Hamor and Shechem, Jacob's absent. He's conspicuously out of the picture. So these people negotiate not with Jacob, but with the children. It's the sons of Jacob who answer in verse 13, Hamor and Shechem. Jacob's just gone. And then finally, if you skip to the very end of the chapter, you see that Jacob finally speaks. And look at what he says. He doesn't rebuke Simeon and Levi for the atrocity, the atrocity that they commit in response to what happened to their sister. But all he says is this, verse 30, you have brought trouble on who? On me. You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. If they gather themselves against me, I'll be destroyed, both me and my household. So the only time in the whole chapter that Jacob opens his mouth is because he's afraid that he will not be able to save his own skin. Now you might wonder, how could Jacob allow this? Well, the people in the Bible are sinners. That's part of the story of the scripture. For one, God works through people that are deeply broken. Why doesn't Jacob speak up? Why isn't Jacob enraged? And the answer is very clear in verse 31. The reason Jacob doesn't say anything, the reason he's conspicuously absent throughout the entire proceedings in the aftermath of this event is because he's afraid of the potential loss he will experience by defending his own daughter. Just like raw power has a corrosive influence on all of us, so also does the threat of exposure and loss. And defending the weak, and often defending oneself, can be costly. We might lose our jobs. We might lose friendships. We might be threatened. And listen, I I want to sympathize with those women who have been hushed through threats and who, through fear, This has obviously happened many, many times. And one of the great things about Me Too is that there is a new willingness to speak. Yet it is also true that there exists in us a propensity to keep things hidden, sometimes even if we are the victim. Now, why is that? Well, shame is one big reason. Fear is another big reason. Guilt is another big reason. I don't have time to get into all of the psychology of that. Let me just say two brief things about this practically as we think about the common failure to defend the weak. First, I do need to say this, I feel, that if you have been victimized, abused, or assaulted, you must tell someone. You must tell someone. Speak to a counselor. Speak to a pastor. 
Speak to someone that you trust. That's so important that you defend yourself in that regard. And secondly, I just feel like we must say in the culture in which we live that the church, the church must do a lot of work to become a safe haven for those who have been afflicted in these ways rather than one of the afflictors. One way the church does that is simply by confessing our, our faults and failures in this area. Another way is by being vigilant and diligent in making sure our own people, especially our children, the most weak and powerless among us, are protected and cared for. That's one of the reasons, very practically, why we have all of our child care workers receive a background check and go through training on these issues. It's one of the reasons why we have policies in place. Policies aren't just these random arbitrary things that organizations use. No, they are tools that are intended to be implemented to protect the weak and the defenseless. And we must be aware that the church in its past has failed on many fronts in this area and work towards being a place where those who have been afflicted in these ways can speak about them and receive care and help and love. So Me Too reminds us of the potential danger and abuses of raw power. It reminds us of the propensity that exists within all sinners to fail to defend the weak because it's going to cost us. And then lastly, Me Too reminds us, last reflection, about the truth that Jesus bears our shame and ridicule at the cross. Me Too draws us back to the gospel For those of us who have been victimized in these ways, who have been victims of sexual harassment and assault, you need to hear this morning the good news that God, the one true God, the only living God, who made everything that is not God, God sees you. God hears your cries and God cares. Listen to the scriptures. Lamentations chapter 3 tells you that the Lord will take up your cause and ransom and redeem you. Psalm 147 says that he will heal your broken heart and bind up your wounds. Isaiah 61 promises that God will open the prison doors locked shut by your assaulter and will proclaim the day of vengeance. God will comfort you and give you beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The gospel tells you that the Lord loves justice and hates wrong and will faithfully give evildoers their recompense. And we know that these promises are true and are for us because they all have their yes and amen in Jesus himself. You see, Jesus was victimized. Jesus was hurt and wounded. Jesus was assaulted. Jesus was tormented. Jesus himself was forsaken. He cried out on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that cry of Jesus on the cross means that he forever identifies with and suffers for victims of abuse and assault. I love what the author Jen Pollock Michelle writes about this in an article she wrote for Christianity Today. Listen to what she says. The cross says that no sin is incidental to God. 
not predatory behavior, not unwanted sexual advances, not lewd joking, not molestation, not rape, not any form of sexual abuse or aggression. On the cross, God radically identifies with the victim and perpetrator. His arms outstretched in both anger and absolution. Me too, says the incarnate God on the cross. He bears our griefs, carries our sorrows, and allows himself to be wounded for our transgressions. This is what makes Christianity so uniquely powerful. It's what makes Christianity a unique answer to all forms of sexual violence and sin. It's what makes Christianity the full and final hope for those afflicted by this injustice. God does not sit idly by and shake his head in disgust and then move on with other things. When he sees what's happening in your life, what's happened in your life, and what's happening in our world. Instead, God enters into the pain and the hurt and the loss of those victimized by sin, and he undergoes it himself to bring redemption. And he also takes the guilt and the evil of those who commit these sins, of those who are perpetrators of these injustices, and he offers them forgiveness. At the cross, Paul tells us in Romans 3 that God is both just and the one who justifies. So the gospel is that the sinless God committed himself freely into the hands of evildoers to repair the wounds of sin. God could not have loved the perpetrators of injustice if he had only enacted justice. No, God enacts mercy at the cross. But he could not have loved the victim if he had only enacted mercy. No, God gives justice at the cross as well. Athanasius, the great church father, describes it like this, that the dilemma of sin was solved by God pitying our race enough to clothe himself with flesh enter the world, and die a shameful death. So really the answer to all forms of injustice, and particularly this one, if you've been personally affected by it, is to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus if you have been a victim of harassment or harm. Run to Jesus if you are guilty of hurting other image bearers. Run to Jesus because he knows exactly what it's like to hurt Run to Jesus because his forgiving love extends to even the worst of us, to even the darkest chambers of our hearts. Run to Jesus and trust him. God has not left the room. God says, me too, to us in Jesus and enters our hurts to bring healing and to bring hope forever. That's the answer. The Christian gospel is not just news, it's good news. Because it tells you that the one, God, the one person who can do something about the injustice of this world has done something by taking it upon himself so that we can receive forgiveness and so that we can receive his perfect justice. May the Lord bless us as we pursue these things in our own lives and trust in Jesus and await his return. Let's pray.